Um, we're in the middle of a sermon series where we're addressing just kind of uh, the interaction of culture and Christianity and how do we uh, uh, not just engage these conversations, but um, especially with the one today, uh, when people are in our life that um, uh, are not Christians, right, or maybe share different ways of seeing the world and they're, they're a loved one, right? How do we live out our faith as Christians like Jesus would within this world, within those friendships, family relationships, etc., and so forth? And today, um, I, I did, you know, post online, mentioned it last week, you know, this might not be the most kid-friendly, I guess, sermon, but I don't know if there's any kids here this morning. I think they're all out. So this is about uh, gender, uh, sexuality, and um, God, right? We're looking at the, the topic of trans people, um, people who struggle with their gender identity. The reason why I am talking about this, um, number one, we, we, we know it's a quote-unquote cultural conversation today, Okay. Um, if there's that phrase culture wars, right, it's one of the center ones, and I'm not interested in engaging this in a culture war fashion. Um, what I am doing is trying to engage it pastorally, because what's been really amazing for me is talking with so many of you the past couple of weeks and realizing this isn't some theoretical topic, because so many of you in your own families, you face this with a loved one, right? Neighbors or coworkers, right? This isn't just some distant thing. This is a at-home topic, right? A niece or nephew that was a male that is now identifying as a female, right? Um, how, how do we as Christians, what do we do? How do we interact with this? How do we be loving, gracious, and truthful? What would Jesus do? How would Jesus live within these relationships, right? It's sensitive because of just how deeply personal this is. Even statistically, there might be somebody in this room that at one point in their life struggled with their sexual identity, right? And the thing about this is I'm not sure, um, as this topic, if it feels new, we're going to look at how in civilizations for millennia, it's actually nothing new. It's, it's surfaced in various ways on almost every civilization. We'll talk about that later on. But the idea is, I don't know if the church right now is known as the place, if, if that is your struggle. I don't know if the church has garnered a reputation to be the place to go to, to find hope or answers or some kind of truth within this. Right? And I, I, I want, I firmly believe that we can be the place for that. Because I think Jesus, if he was alive today, he would be the place that people would go to in their struggles looking for hope and looking for answers of how to face even their own struggles. So, um, as we start off, right, we're not a church that, um, that affirms. Okay, the path, but biblically speaking, we, we, we don't understand scriptures as affirming, you know, taking action to actually alter um, or attempt to alter your uh, gender through surgical or through hormonal therapy. We understand this as a moral issue. We're going to get into these things throughout our time. 
we understand this is a moral issue before God, a, a sin, right? If, if one takes action to do this, moral lines are crossed in terms of God's design for humanity, but we'll break these things down this morning. This is not a, a, a lecture. Um, there will be some data transfer inevitably throughout our time today. But again, this is a deeply pastoral one. I want to equip you all to answer the question, how do we as followers of Jesus live amongst neighbors, friends, coworkers, siblings, grandparents, as, you know, as a grandparent, etc., of those who identify as trans? How would Jesus live in a society that embraces and encourages this amongst its citizens? Right? How would you respond if someone came to you and said, I, 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 I want to become a trans person? And they're looking for some kind of you know, answers or counsel from you. Um, so we're going to establish um, uh, how to respond to that, look at the biblical answer for this, as well as kind of a summary statement at the end. So I can't talk about everything. I had to cut out and keep cutting because I would have had you here till one o'clock, right, if I try to cover. This is a huge topic. I'm fully aware of that, right? Um, so there will be questions you might have about this that I cannot cover, um, and there might be other avenues to what we can, right? But I want to learn how to be a church within such a society that we find ourselves in today while remaining, you know, uh, uh, without compromise to, to thousands of years of, of Christian orthodoxy, right? And what the church has been teaching for thousands of years, right? We, we can unashamedly embrace those things while still being gracious and compassionate, in our presence in this world. So first, um, let's talk about, you know, what is, what does it mean to be transgender, okay? Um, this is a, a, a definition from Christian psychologist Mark Yarhouse. It's on the slide behind me here. Transgender is an umbrella term for the many ways in which people might experience and or present and express or live out their gender identities differently from people whose sense of gender identity is incongruent with their biological sex. Plain, you know, made simple. If you are a male upon birth and you question or struggle with that reality, transgender is an, transgender is an umbrella term for people who struggle with that. In whatever ways they struggle, it's an umbrella term that covers it. The struggles are very diverse within that term, right? Yet the crucial absolute foundation as Christians here, I believe, comes from Romans 2.4. We visit visiting this verse off and on throughout our time. Romans 2.4 says this. Do you show, or you know, it's a mid-sentence for Paul, okay? He's kind of in the middle of an argument here. But he says, you know, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? And here we go. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to Repentance. As we talk about something like this, we have to realize nobody is debated into the kingdom of God. Nobody is yelled at into the kingdom of God. That's not how this works. It is the kindness of God that leads people towards his kingdom, that leads people towards a change of mind as repentance is that word literally means a change of mind. It is the kindness of God that leads people to the truth that results in a changed mind, right? 
I think the first way of kindness, if we are to embrace the kindness of God in this conversation, is to learn how to, be, uh, how to find empathy for those who struggle with their biological gender. I want to talk about three ways that we can take steps to do so. Because I believe finding empathy with people is part of the Jesus way. We'll get into all this. Number one, the first step here is empathy begins by being, by, by being willing to try to understand the struggle. Empathy begins by being willing to try to understand the struggle. Again, you might want to take notes. I hope this isn't like a, this might be three sermons in one today. I'm sorry. So <laughs> if you want to keep track of notes, I encourage you to do so. Um, empathy begins being willing to try to understand. If your mentality toward the conversation is, this is all just crazy, and you just kind of clock out of it and just kind of write it off as crazy, um, you probably aren't really willing within, right? And secondly, I don't really know if I see Jesus being approached by people with internal struggles and him being like, man, this is crazy and just not doing anything, right? We have to understand this is a real struggle for people. At the core for trans people and those who struggle with their biological sex, we must first embrace that for many it is a real struggle. I went on a personal journey the past, uh, I've been preparing for the sermon for quite some time now, um, trying to have a somewhat not a complete blank slate, right? I knew some biblical teachings on this, but I try to have somewhat of an open mind to just, to just you know, uh, learn. I want to be a learner here. I say, Lord, make me a learner living in this culture because this feels new to me, right? This has an impact in my own family, my own internal relationships, my own life. I don't have this directly that's in my life. Indirectly, I kind of do, but not, you know, in my own life. So I wanted to be a learner, right? Um, and what I learned in this is this is a real struggle for people, which then leads to number two here, to listen. If you're willing to engage, willing to under, try to understand the struggle, you need to learn to listen. Listen to the stories of those who identify as trans or of those who struggle with their biological sex. Um, I spent hours on YouTube, not like Christian YouTube channels, just listening to people who quote unquote, right, came out, right, and shared their stories. I heard a variety of stories, hours and hours of stories, right? And I learned something. I learned quite a lot hearing just people's very real human experiences, right? I think a practice that we can learn here is to first keep our mouth closed, keep our ears open and just listen because this is what Jesus did often. Right? We find him sitting with people over food and being a presence in the lives of those around him. He was a good listener. He sat with the woman at the well and he listened. Right? He had a conversation with her. And number three here, I think, as a Jesus follower, we need to be available. Right? None of this means that we have to agree, endorse, we'll get into all that. But number three is just to be available. Because listen, Psalm 38, 14 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 38, 14. This all comes from somebody's struggle in life. And it says that for those who have um, a crushed spirit, who there's an internal struggle within, God is close to. Are you willing to be near, to be available 
for those who may have this. Being available is an act of love. Again, you can be available without agreeing, etc., and so forth, but you can be available out of love. So much more can be said, right? But those three things, being willing to understand, to listen to stories of those who identify as trans and to be available, even if those first three things are just, you're willing to engage those things as a Christian, right? I really think this, just walking in the spirit of Jesus is going to be so much more of a powerful just witness, right, as a church. And so we're gonna continue plowing forward here as you look at scriptures now and kind of attempt to grapple after we understand just, you know, uh, wanting to have empathy and not just write this conversation off from people, but wanting to have empathy. Um, Biblically and theologically, there are a lot to talk about here. And I want to just tackle kind of the big one at the beginning here, is becoming a trans person a sin. Now, the word sin means to miss the mark. And the mark, biblically speaking, is God's moral law. Uh, many ways to say that is his design for humanity as God designed, you know, creatures, humanity, um, to miss the mark of how he intended things to be. Um, that's, that this all is sin, right? But I want to break this down a little further because there's a difference between struggling versus acting on it. It's one thing to struggle with gender dysphoric feelings and another thing to act on it. Now the church needs to learn to be just as compassionate for anyone who comes forward and says, I struggle with feeling this way towards my own biological sex and recognize and realize that just because there's a struggle doesn't mean there's, there's sin present. Anybody ever struggled in this room? Okay, and not like just went plow forward and gave in to whatever that struggle was. Yeah, I think so, right? Wasn't Jesus even tempted in scripture, right? He was tempted yet without sin, right? Part of the human experience is struggle and temptation. But it doesn't mean that, you know, the sin line has been crossed, And we'll talk about that in a second, right? So somebody coming forward saying, I struggle with living a life embracing my biological sex. We should be able to say, great, let's talk. Let's talk about this. Let's hear your story. Let's let's discuss this, right? Um, To struggle is to live in the broken world. And we should have our doors wide open for anybody struggling in this world looking for hope. But in saying this, How do we as Christians then respond if someone has acted on it? This is what I mean. They have become a trans person, right? They've done surgical means or taken hormonal blockers or et cetera and so forth, taken action on this, and they walk in our doors or they are in our life. Your niece, your nephew, your neighbor, your grandchild, whoever it might be, right? Your own children, adult children, whatever it might be, they, they cross these lines and they embrace it, right? If we as Christians ultimately look at such actions as a sin, as missing the mark and not in line with God's designs for humanity, right? How does truth and grace look, right? How do we maintain truth but walk in grace? just as Jesus did. Um, recognizing that we all have struggles, right? There's the, the empathy piece. First, understand 
hey, this is a struggle in your life. You have acted on, yeah, I've acted on my struggles too, right? And I know it's a very different kind of wide umbrella there, but just try to at least find some common ground to say, okay, this person's struggling with something. They've taken action on this. But I think the church is often known when that conversation happens. Um, I know I'm going back in time here, but anybody remember the Bob Newhart skit, Stop It? Remember this? Some of you? Well, there was, I think it was Mad TV maybe. It's actually funny and genius in some ways. I think the church has developed this reputation. It's found in this skit, all right? The skit is like a Saturday Night Live kind of skit. And there's Bob Newhart and he's this counselor, okay? And this patient comes in and she's sitting there and, and she's like, I struggle with um, being, you know, the fear of being buried alive in a box. And Bob Newhart says, great. Well, I'm gonna tell you two words that can just fix everything. And he leans over and he goes, stop it. And she's like, that's it, you know? And it's actually funny, right? Um, Because I think if we're not careful, that can be the church, right? Somebody comes up with their struggle, we're just like, well, just stop. And it bypasses the process, right? Because the the funny part of the skit is actually it's genius because the person does want to stop it, of course. That's why they come and get counseling to stop something. But the issue with the skit, right, is there's a whole process. Because at one part, she's like, well, you know, no, no, when I was a kid, he goes, no, 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 we don't don't go there here. Just stop it, right? Because there's a process of understanding struggles in life. And as a Christian, we understand this as discipleship. Discipleship is a process. When you become a Christian, it's not like overnight. It's just everything changes. Everything is just perfectly aligned to God's design as you know, human beings. It's just all there the next morning. And we're like, oh, we fully arrived. It's like, no, right? We are just fighting our flesh until the last day that we die, right? So um, we, 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 we can't embrace any kind of a message that's trying to bypass the process of growing in Christ through the help of the Spirit. I think the church has gained reputation often for doing the Bob Newhart, just stop it, right? And it can feel very condemning for people who've had a lifelong struggle, who maybe are interested in Jesus, and all they hear is just like, I, I don't know, why should I stop? Is there a purpose? Like, there's a lot of work, right? Let's teach about the kingdom of God. Let's teach about God's design. There's a lot of, there's a process involved here and we need to be committed to walking alongside of people in that process while never compromising truth but walking in grace. Does this make sense? Are you guys tracking with me, right? Okay, we're about our halfway point. You guys still awake? You falling asleep? Okay, good. Hope you're awake. We got a little more to do, Okay. So um, I, let's begin thinking more Christianly here, okay? Um, let's begin thinking more Christianly. We, we, we know, you know, if, if, a, if, a, if a trans person walks in our doors looking for Jesus, we know that there's a process. We know we can walk along them. There's, there's empathy. We've talked about these things. But let's kind of look at, like, really deeply into this guy here, right? This, this many thousand-year-old book and see if there's still wisdom for us to navigate. Um, and again, just keep in mind, I'm trying to equip you to engage these conversations in your own life. So uh, how do we think Christianly about this? Um, Preston Sprinkle, he is a New Testament scholar that um, kind of by accident um, has become kind of a, a, a prominent resource in this conversation for the church. I can't recommend enough reading a lot of his material on this. Um, This sermon in many ways is brought to you by Preston Sprinkle. So um, yeah, he's just super helpful 
in thinking through this. So there's really three primary categories as Christians that can uh, help us navigate this conversation. The first one is the ontological lens. It's a fancy word for the, the state of being, right? Our identity is, is people, being a human being. The ontological lens, the ethical or moral lens, and the practical lens. All right, those three things. Let's break those down. Thinking Christianly, thinking biblically about this, let's first look at the ontological lens. Who am I? That's the question of our culture today across almost every spectrum, trying to figure out who we are as human beings. Who am I? And within this conversation, the question really is, does God actually consider me a man or a woman? Does he have my gender in mind when he looks down upon me in my existence today? Because if you're a person who struggles with this, that's a very important thing to answer. And so let's look at the very first page of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, this is in the creation account, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. On the ground. So verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now in Hebrew literature, there's some what we call parallelism that happens in Hebrew poetry where you state the same thing um, twice in different ways, right? It's all throughout the Psalms, the same idea is stated and then it's restated beneath it in a parallelism within its poetry and that's going on here. God created mankind in his own image in the image of God who created him, male and female, he created them. So what is deeply important to understand what it means to be in the image of God to be a male and to be a female, right? Which certainly implies that the Bible doesn't really give room for any kind of fluidness in that category because what's central to your image bearing as a human being is if you're a female or if you're a male, that is central to bearing the image of God. But what if there's a difference between how I feel about my own gender versus what is my biological gender, does how I feel overrule my biology? Another huge question of 2022 of modern times. This question of feeling versus who we are is crucial, absolutely crucial in our times, right? Especially in this conversation. Christian discipleship understands the work of the Holy Spirit in us through the process of sanctification. We talked about this, the the Spirit's progressive work in our life alongside of our own work to be what we are designed to be by God. Sin is where we in any way in our life where we start blurring the lines of creator and creature. Sin is when we try to live as if we are actually the God in charge. And this is, this is back to Genesis 3 right here, right? It's the authority question. Like, am I, am I in charge of my own existence? Like, completely in charge of my own existence? Or am I beneath a God who has designed my own existence? A loving God. And there is a, a certain way that he intended for me to live. That sounds very oppressive in 2022, right? But this is the worldview that comes out of Scripture, 
In Genesis 3, when God warned Adam and Eve of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to be a tree that they should not eat from lest they die, this really was a, it's a test for them to trust God and to embrace being in his image as his created creatures. Knowledge of good and evil feels like something powerful to have, something that could potentially empower them and transform them to be something more than they were because that was the tempter's words to them. And when he was talking to Eve and Adam standing right behind her, he said this, if, you know, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. They were already in his image, but the, the conversation was like, you'll have more of that godness. Like you'll, you'll, you'll have more of the power and the freedom and authority that God has if you just take that fruit, right? That was the first temptation. Understand this, okay? Bear with me here. God is the most free being in the universe. God wills his own existence. Did you? Did you choose your parents? Did you choose your own day that you would be born? Did you choose where you would be born? Did you choose your hair color, your height? Did you choose your own sex upon being born? You understand where I'm going with this? For all of history, we have always struggled with wanting complete and unfettered just control over our own lives in order to fix the brokenness that we see in this world. We want to be the own messiahs of our own life to just take control and just fix what's broken within and around us. It is to be expected that our feelings will often contradict much of the natural way of things according, you know, that we see in this world. And our culture's embrace of feeling over biology is really just a manifestation of many of the millennia old struggle, but is also very much a part of this therapeutic kind of culture that we live in that has kind of reduced feeling to be really the, uh, to, to have um, positive good feelings of yourself as kind of the end all, end all goal. That is the way of, of, of life today, but is not the way of Christianity of God's design for people, right? Scriptures say that actual freedom is found, like real freedom, like true freedom is found by embracing who we are in light of our creator, by embracing the cross as the place where we can find forgiveness, where the process of beginning what's broken in this world, it begins at the cross, not with our own hands, but with the hands that bore the nails on that cross. And it's embracing the resurrection of Jesus as a, as a new life, the kingdom life, the life of heaven that is breaking into this world, the life of love, of grace, of truth, of justice that is breaking into this world through the help of the Holy Spirit. That is how we return to being image bearers of God. Galatians 5.1 says, for it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Like you were set free from your sin in your life that you may experience freedom. He says, stand firm, therefore, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Living in the restraints that God has set out for humanity really is our freedom. 
It sounds like a paradox, but it's truly not. If you live within the design that God has for humanity, you will experience true freedom to be human. It's only possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's that first state of being lens, the ontological lens, if you will, right? Secondly, here's the ethical lens, the moral lens. The Bible points out that our our biological sex is part of our image bearing of God, male and female, we established it. The Bible does not seem to teach that blending, um, the blending of genders or, or, or changing genders, any kind of fluidity in that regard, um, uh, they don't, it, it doesn't affirm this. It teaches it as, as something actually immoral. And we'll look at this in Deuteronomy 22.5, super obscure verse, admittingly, shows up really once in our Bible, but it, here it is. Um, a woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear a woman's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. All right, this is not some like, old school verse to tell women not to wear jeans because those are men's pants. Like that's not what this is about, okay? Um, I grew up in the Bible Belt where that was still kind of lingering um, from a verse like this. That's not what this is referring to. This verse exists because of its ancient Near Eastern context. This is where things get really interesting and more sympathy can be found, more empathy can be found. If you dig deep, you'll see that in almost every culture for all of history, um, people struggled with their biological sexual identity. And there's various ways they tried to cope with this. And in Israel's ancient Near Eastern context, there was recent evidence that surfaced of pagan rituals and for the ancient Canaanites, all right? Those are the people that surrounded Israel in the promised land. Um, um, there was numerous terms in their language for people who assumingly did not identify as male or female. They were not recognized as either male or female. And things like cross-dressing occurred with these people. The cross-dressing mostly took place within ritual worship ceremonies of the ancient Canaanite god Ishtar, the god who was known as the one who could change woman into man and man into woman. Why do I mention this? Because there's nothing new under the sun. This is like 3,000 years ago, friends. There's nothing new under the sun. But secondly, it shows God's kind of a guidance with his own people surrounded by these ancient pagan people, right? He says meddling with your gender identity was considered something that he detests. Some um, translations, more old school King James uses the word like abomination, right? He, he detests these things. He, he, he rejects these things because, as we said, his image bearers, are male and female. It's an integral part of what it means to bear the image of God. Um, there's another uh, quick ethical uh, kind of conversation here that's really important to grasp. I thought about deleting this part, but I really want to mention it. Um, part of the argument that happens today, and if this is happens in your own family or a close loved one comes to you and expresses these things, this may be something you'll hear. That, the, that part of the, the ethical lens of our, of our culture that pushes people towards these gender reassignment surgeries or hormonal blockers or what have you is the goal of relieving someone of their suffering. Right, to once again affirm that if someone is struggling with accepting their biological sex, part of our therapeutic culture says that we must relieve that pressure. 
right? It's a moral obligation in our culture to get people permission to relieve them of their suffering. That's how this goes, right? From what I understood from, from um, research and modern counseling approaches, um, many, uh, it's pretty common when parents, okay, take their children or teens who appear to be struggling with their biological sex. Um, they take them to therapists and psychologists and they're really told, well, if they aren't relieved of their suffering, if they aren't relieved of this, um, suicide will be their future. And that's kind of the, the choice given to parents. Now as a parent, imagine hearing that. The pressure's on, right? This is kind of what's happening around us here. But here's some truth just to kind of speak into this. We, we, we know that suffering um, is here. Sometimes it's relieved. That's why we, we have this phrase, the kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet here, right? We know that God can actually heal people. Like we've, maybe you've had the experience of praying for somebody to be healed and they're healed. We've also had the experience of praying for people to be healed and they aren't healed, right? Um, we've had the experience of being sick and suffering ourselves and saying, God, relieve me of this. And sometimes he does, but sometimes you're like Paul who has this, you know, whatever it is, this ambiguous thorn in the flesh that he talks about. And he says, I, I, I pleaded three times, God, stop, relieve this of me. And he didn't, right? And you have the whole book of Job, which actually concludes telling us of all of Job's suffering and never really giving us a reason for it other than God saying, I am God and you are not. Are you okay with this? Right? We know this is a, it's an extraordinarily difficult part of our human experience, often wondering why God allows suffering when he does. But I think it's just arrogance to think that as human beings, we can just our goal is to relieve anyone of any kind of suffering if they're experiencing it. Suffering is part of our human existence. There's a whole sermon we could do on the theology of suffering for some other day that can be. Um, so just know, right, that if um, that's, that's, this is part of the conversation, that it's um, people suffering, God may have a, a, a reason for that. And it's, I know it's a really hard conversation. One day we'll, we'll go into that as well. But we're going to move on to the, the, the practical lens. Get practical and start closing up here in a few minutes. As we seek to have compassion for those who struggle with their biological gender, we must recognize that even aside from the biblical and the theological reasons, which I hope are relatively clear, right? Much more could be said, but you've kind of grasped the basic scriptural teachings on this. Practically speaking, reassignment surgery or hormone blockers, it's actually no guarantee that someone's suffering will be relieved. There's no guarantee that it's actually going to quote unquote work to relieve people from whatever struggle that they are experiencing. This is especially true among youth, okay? Um, in the majority, and that's true, in the majority of cases, um, struggles of young people, teens, children with their biological sex is an outgrowth of other struggles. Uh, Lisa Littman of Brown University, she actually coined the term rapid onset gender dysphoria. And this rapid onset gender dysphoria is really common among young people and teens. It appears seemingly just out of nowhere. It's just like, boom, it's there. Your teenager, your teenager comes up and says, I, I wanna have a, you know, a sex change, I identify as trans. It's like, where did this come from? Rapid onset gender dysphoria. Um, Extensive research was done and there's some commonalities. 
among these young people where this occurs. Many, if not all, of their friends at school were trans, and their coming out often followed their friends coming out as trans. Uh, Many experienced increased popularity at school for coming out as trans. Many of them had other mental health concerns that were not being dealt with, right? In Lippmann's research, it was shown 63% of young people struggled with other mental health struggles. 48 experienced trauma, 45 engaged not, uh, in, in, um, in non-suicidal self-harm, right? And, and many other things. Um, what this means is practically speaking for, for many who may be in our lives, who may struggle with gender dysphoria, if they're especially young kids or teenagers, there's a very high probability that there's other factors that may be at play here. Not to say that they aren't truly struggling with that, they really well might be. But there may be other issues in their life as well. And there's no guarantee that actually stepping forward with these kind of big intervention kind of you know, methods are going to relieve anything. And so um, there's reasons, even outside of scripture, to kind of wave a hand of caution with this. There's a number of stories of people detransitioning more evidence that there's no guaranteed way to alleviate those who suffer with their biological agenda. Um, gender. Um, so I threw out a lot of information at you guys. I don't normally preach this way. I understand that. But I, I did feel compelled and necessary in our times to at least address this and hopefully equip you. But I want to get just really practical here. Um, just with a couple of stories. Is what do we do as a church? Right? How do we continue being the church in such unique times that we live in in 2022? Okay? To once again return to Preston Sprinkle um, and a lot of his research and scholarship and some of his writings, I want to read you a quote from him. I'll have it behind me here. Okay. He was once asked the question, what if someone who has already transitioned, they're already transitioned, um, they identify as trans and they've already made those steps, taken action. What happens if they start attending your church? Right? Knowing that everybody's story and situations are complicated and diverse and et cetera, he gave a summary statement which I think is really reflecting of kind of the Jesus spirit. First, Christians should want trans people, whether non-transitioned or transitioned, to flood our churches. The more the merrier, I'll say. It'll create loads of beautifully complex pastoral opportunities and some Christians will get uncomfortable and leave, but so be it. I don't think church should be limited to squeaky clean Christians who think they have all of their stuff together, who keep their sex addictions, their greed, their pride, their lack of concern for the poor hidden behind dusty hymnals. I want churches filled with those who know their brokenness, who don't hide their pain, who ask very hard questions. If a trans person who has just transitioned is coming to your church, praise God, I hope they are treated with the utmost kindness and respect. All the difficult questions about what to do, they're secondary to creating communities that embody God's kindness which draws people to himself, especially those who have been marginalized by the church. If Jesus were a pastor today, I suspect he would have plenty of trans people attending his church. Do they want to attend yours? Do they want to attend yours? 
I'm going to share a story now. This isn't my own story. Um, taken from the same author, this really powerfully kind of presents this. Okay? There's a woman who struggled with gender dysphoria and homosexuality. She was raised in the church by Christian parents, and her struggle was so deep, so deep, in fact, that she went to her pastor as a desperate teenager just looking for help. As she explained what was going on, it's a true story, this pastor simply stood up, opened up his office door, and he said, not in my church, and escorted her out. Now, you can imagine she didn't go back to that church, nor to any church for a very long time. But later as a trans person, she married a woman. Her spouse died very young of a freak accident. Um, she knew of a church that her spouse in some years past had some kind of you know, relationship with. And it was the only church she knew of at the time anywhere close to her. And she needed someone to perform the funeral and a place to have it. So she calls that church. The pastor picks up and this person says, hello. My spouse just died, we're lesbians, and I'm wondering if you could do my wife's funeral. Now that's church, they stand on the same position as we do, right? Taking actions on these things. Um, we, we can't endorse these things as from God or, or, or scripture cannot affirm these things, etc. But you know what the pastor's response was? Knowing this wasn't a member of his congregation, somebody from the community, right? Clearly on the phone just even weeping as she said this, clearly broken whose spirit was crushed, right? Like God in his kindness, who was near to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, he listened, he sympathized, and he was available. Here's how he responded. We would be honored to. I know what it's like to lose a loved one. I am so sorry. They offered her the building for free. They helped tremendously with funeral expenses and the love and grace that she received from the small community of Christians down the street, it rocked her world. It brought her back, her all the way back to some of the gospel seeds that were planted deep down in her from her childhood. It gave her hope. And it was then that she began her path of returning to Jesus as the church gracefully and truthfully walked her through what it means to be a Jesus follower in light of the struggles in her own life. Now, in a situation like that, it'd been far easier just to say, I don't want to get involved. That's super messy. And as a church, it'd just be way easier path to just say, sorry, we can't. And calendar's full that day and put the phone down. But he was willing. He was willing to extend the grace and love to a very messy situation with the result of that person once again finding the hope and the grace and the love and truth and the heavenly joys of life in Jesus Christ. So I call up our worship team at this time to, to look back at Romans 2, 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is what draws people to himself. The church's kindness is what draws people to himself. You know who's the best restorer of broken things in this world? Not mic. Not microphones. Check in my back. Um, who, who's the best restorer of broken things in this world? It's not us. It's not you, 
It is Christ in you, right? It is the presence of Christ as he surfaces in your life. And that is the presence that we need to embrace God's kindness. Friends, let's be a kind church that never compromises the truth but is known for just being gracious. I said it a few weeks back, right? People who were broken in very messy situations and struggles in life in the New Testament, they were not afraid to go to Jesus and fall at his feet because they knew they would get love from him. They would get the truth too. And people are looking for that, friends. They really are. Right? Are we willing to be that church? Um, as we close this sermon, thank you for bearing with this sermon today. Um, we, we, uh, every time we have ministry time, uh, we have a time when people are available for prayer, that you can come forward to receive prayer. Um, if, there's, if there's anybody in your life, um, like I said, some of this is very personal. I talk to many of you. This is a personal conversation for you, and I hope it didn't step on toes. I don't want to, but, um, and you just want to pray just for wisdom from God on how to navigate this in your own life, right? As a friend or a parent or a grandparent, please come forward with prayer. We want to pray for you. We want you to be empowered by the Spirit to be like Jesus in that, right? Um, if, if, if you're struggling with some of these things, please come forward. We're not going to push you away and reject you. Um, if there's any other needs in your life, right, there can be something entirely different that God has been stirring in your heart this morning that you need prayer for, um, please come forward in prayer. Please respond to what the Spirit has been speaking in your own hearts this morning. So um, let, me, uh, let me pray. Lord, I ask in just my feeble attempts this morning that we can just feel better equipped, better equipped to, to live out as Jesus' followers. Lord, just this, this life of the kingdom, Lord, that is breaking into this world. It's hard, it's messy, it's complicated. This could have been a three-hour sermon. It's just so much, Lord. Uh, for so many, it just feels out of left field almost. Uh, some of us, it's very real in our own lives. But Lord, would you help us to just graciously live out um, the, the truth for those who are just broken and, and struggling, may Emmanuel Church be, be known for being a place where they can come and just be honest about them as they ask hard questions about Jesus and just the church and who he was and what he, what he preached and just what it's like to be a Christian. In the midst of all these struggles, Lord, help us to be people who are available for that, for those people, Lord, for those kinds of conversations, Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would manifest in us um, your love that you have for these people, Lord. Manifest in our hearts, Lord, the, the deep and wide and just ever, just almost incomprehensible love that you have, Lord, for this world and for your people and for the people who are struggling, Lord. Help us to share in this love and to participate in it, Lord, while still standing firm on the promises and teachings and truths of your scripture. We love you, Jesus, so much. We thank you that you are with us, that you can restore. 
You can bind the brokenness, Lord. Your cross is enough, and your resurrection, Lord, is enough. Your Holy Spirit can truly bring about new life in us. And may we as a church live in that and act upon it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.